Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter, where we pre-stream each episode on Twitter Spaces the day before publishing on all major podcast platforms. For the platform list, visit our website, blockchainrecorded.com. And with us today, we have Martin Schmidt. Martin is one of the initiators of the well, co-initiators of the Q protocol, a layer one blockchain that provides shared governance security for the Web3 world. Besides co-founding Q Development AG, a company focused on supporting the Q protocol, he's the founder of Postera Capital, the company behind Europe's first regulated crypto fund. And before discovering crypto, Martin has had a career at the intersection of finance and technology. Martin, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. Hi, great to be here. And I think I'm interchanging again your name. I say Martin and, Mar and Martin. <laughs> I apologize for that if I'm mispronouncing your name. That is totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Please just tell us about your background and uh, just sort of, I always, it's the typical question that I ask and what led you to the world of Web3 and ultimately co-initiating Q Protocol? I got into Web3 or, or crypto as it was still called back then mm -hmm. in 2000, around 2016, 2017, uh, was introduced by friends, colleagues, one of them, Nicholas, who is also one of the initiators behind the Q protocol. Uh, and I guess as so many of us kind of stumbled into it, I was skeptical at first. Coming from a traditional finance background, I had many questions as to Uh, you know, the technology, whether it could work, you know, as to the economics, uh, how can a token without intrinsic value, accrue value, you know, do smart contracts work and so on and so forth. Uh, but at the same time was fascinated by it and, uh, yeah, stumbled into it. And, you know, the, the infamous rabbit hole, I guess, applied to me to uh, just read a lot and, um, you know, never get out again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's usually once you're in, it's very difficult to to look back. So what led you to, um, well, you actually say initiate when you say you're all initiators. This is actually the first time that we've had this, the title. What prompted you to co-initiate Q Protocol? We're trying to be precise with words and language. And uh, uh, many people say co-founder, which I think is kind of a Founder. misnomer for a protocol that's decentralized and not really belonging to any specific entity or person. So if you want, technically, the Q protocol has been initiated by a bunch of people, including myself, but the token launch was out of a Liechtenstein-based foundation, um, a nonprofit foundation, in which I don't have a role personally. So um, this is why we prefer to say initiator rather than founder, because founder implies some kind of control that I, as a person, simply don't have in the protocol. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's that. What that's what lies behind the title. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I guess in general in Web3, um, the language differs from the language we use in the corporate context sometimes. Um, and, you know, partially that's just buzzwording, but I think partially that's also for a good reason. Right. Um, because things are different. So we're trying to, you know, at the places where things are really different, we're also trying to use uh, language that really represents um, the facts of what we're doing and how things work in, in Web3 or in the decentralized world. I think actually that's a very, very fair point. Up until now, no one has actually talked about it in this in this way that as a co-founder it implies that you you own or control something i actually i think that's a very f fresh way of of looking at it and and very valid yeah we, we we're trying also to be um yeah to be cognizant of that within the team within the community mm -hmm. uh, just recently there is a i've come across a great blog post by rebecca retic who's the i believe 
I'm chief legal officer of Polygon Labs, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote pretty much the same points and pointed out the differences in language that apply to Web3 um, as compared to the corporate world. And, and I think a lot of that is actually what regulators and lawmakers get wrong. Um, so they're trying to kind of um, approach the Web3 space in the same way that they approach, approach the corporate space. And, you know, for some aspects, I think that might be fine, but for others, it just leads in the wrong direction. So um, I believe that being cognizant of the language you use is, yeah, is quite important. I strongly agree with that. I strongly agree with that. So let's move on to actually, well, let's, I, I should just ask this first. What is Q protocol? Uh, the Q protocol is decentralized protocol that intends to provide shared governance security for Web3. And, and breaking that down um, a little bit more technically, maybe mm-hmm. it's um, that the technical basis is a layer one blockchain uh, based on Ethereum technology. So it's a fork of the Geth client with a set of smart contracts on top of it, on top of it uh, plus an architecture that enables decentralized decision making, as we say, beyond Cody's law mm-hmm. uh, to be implemented and enforced within decentralized uh, context or in the decentralized world. That's a very rich uh, description, and we will definitely unpack all of the components because there's there's the technicals, and then you just mentioned it's basically it supports government governance frameworks, and then the the code is lo- beyond code is law is what I'll probably drill you a little bit more later. Before we get into the nitty gritty of of Q, it would be good to set the stage just for the concept of governance in general. So if we talk about on-chain government, governance, could, could you describe or how you see on-chain governance, the on-chain governance space, or and how do you see it evolving? Maybe we talk about that in general, sort of just to set the stage for, for the governance space before we, before we actually talk about Q in more in detail. Mm. Um, taking a very high-level view, yes. uh, my belief or observation is that the decentralized governance space and how we deal with on-chain governance Mm -hmm. is still very much in its infancy. So um, I'd like to draw a parallel to smart contract security, which is that if you compare the stage where we're at when it comes to governance security, we are really in, you know, 2016, you know, equivalent or 2015 equivalent even mm. for smart contract security. So, we, so we haven't even dif- discovered or implemented the basics in many protocols mm-hmm. that make governance security reliable and secure and sustainable. Uh, so, what you see in many protocols is that you have, you know, I'd, I'd say pretty random voting on any types of decisions by all token holders. And not a lot of nuance when it comes to how decisions are made, what types of decisions require which type of decision by which stakeholder group. Um, but also, there is very little thought about governance security, i.e. if you have governance parameters or things that are controlled by governance within a protocol, how do you avoid those being uh, corrupted or exploited even, mm-hmm. uh, either by stakeholders of um, the protocol itself or by you know outside stakeholders that might want to you know either capture value uh, or just make things more difficult. Mm-hmm. So along the lines of what you just mentioned, um, you talk in an article or, or write in an article that the main reason behind crypto exploits and hacks is the lack of proper governance. What exactly do you consider proper governance? And um, well, this is sort of a twofold question. Um, and how does it integrate into the decentralization thesis of Web3? Hmm. Um, proper governance, in my view, always needs at least three elements. Uh, so first, you need a rule set, which defines what the governance is, what it does, mm-hmm. what the rules are that should be applied. Secondly, and I think this is um, the element that often is missing, you need a mechanism of enforcing uh, those rules. So unless rules are enforced, they're pretty much worthless. Or even the worst case, they're the counterproductive in that people think they can rely on a rule set, but in fact they don't when things go wrong. 
So rule sets, enforcement, and the third element that you need is um, a way to resolve disputes, mm -hmm. which is particularly important when you have rules that are, um, you know, as I like to say, non-deterministic, so need interpretation um, or do reflect some kind of intent that needs to be interpreted. So if you have those, I would say that those are the minimum criteria that you need for, quote-unquote, proper governance um, or governance that actually works. If one of them is missing, typically... Um, it's not great. And that's where a lot of DAOs run into problems. Yes, yes. And uh, the, the way that this ties into the general thesis or framework of decentralization is um, that I believe if you have a decentralized protocol uh, with governance, i.e. there are decisions that need to be made um, beyond the code, so you know decisions that, that are made by token holders or by other stakeholders in the system, Uh, then if those decisions are not decentralized and cannot be enforced in a decentralized way, but rely on either centralized decision-making or basically existing legal systems to be enforced, then you're kind of almost losing all the benefits of decentralization that you're looking for. So the, the way that I think about it is, is that, that the security of any system or protocol is always only as good as the um, weakest part mm -hmm. and often that weakest part is governance so you may have um, you know great uh, a great protocol that works as long as it does based on smart contracts um, that are immutable that cannot be tempered with but then you have those few elements of the protocol where really critical decisions end up being made by you know two people, three people with a multisig or mm -hmm. um, token holders where you have low to voter turnout and that can be easily captured or corrupted um, or that are, worst of all, not even properly defined so you don't even know what the decision-making is for those elements of the protocol. So decentralized governance decisions um, and the security related to that, in my view, is really an essential part of the whole decentralization thesis that if it's missing, we're limiting ourselves to just very simple protocols that can actually run on purely on immutable smart contracts, you know, which I believe there are such protocols, definitely, um, but that is very limited. Just to help uh, our audience perhaps picture or understand more these abstract these are very abstract sort of terms that we're that we're dancing around could you give us maybe a good use case of how proper governance is integrated in a DAO for example it's usually the most common now that we we consider or actually we're maybe not even a DAO I'm not sure what what your practices or what your experience has been this far yes I think DAOs are a good place to start and uh, there are You know, very different types of DAOs. So we, we can mm -hmm. we, we can go through a couple of different DAO archetypes, if you will. So one would be a DAO that's purely, let's say, a social DAO that brings together people with a common interest. And there, for example, membership decisions could be an element that are uh, subject to governance. And, you know, you can, of course, say that the DAO members decide on a one-by-one -one basis who's admitted and who's not. But you could also say, you know, we want certain criteria and those should be objective and should be enforced mm -hmm. by the DAO, which, you know, doesn't really work purely on a token holder voting basis, because how do you ensure that the criteria are upheld within the community other than by social pressure? Mm -hmm. So this would be one, one example of a purely social DAO where governance um, comes in, which maybe is not, you know, as security critical, but kind of still mission critical for the DAO. Uh, another example would be a DAO controlling a DeFi protocol. So, um, you know, you have MakerDAO famously, um, it even has the DAO in its name. Um, but if you look at most DeFi protocols, uh, they are dependent on parameter setting. So let's say lending protocol, you have criteria of what's an eligible asset, what are margin requirements, mm -hmm. what are liquidation ratios and so on, you know, or a Uh, AMA, where AMM, sorry, where you decide which tokens are supported by the front end. Um, that could be another example. So in all of those cases, you have some parameters that are set, and again, those parameter settings are often done by some form of DAO or token holder voting. Um, and in many DeFi protocols, those parameters 
are security critical. So meaning that if you get your hands on enough tokens, you can manipulate key parameters and exploit exploit the DAO. This is, I mean, this is happening um, unfortunately on a regular basis. Uh, Mango DAO was one example where that has happened, and and that's a that's a governance issue. So having poor governance or non-enforceable governance rules puts the whole DeFi protocol at risk. So it sounds like just in, in from a bird's eye view that the automated part only gets us up to a certain point that we need to do more. So where does Protocol Q come in with its mission and with what um, with what you were doing and its use case? Uh, the Q protocol allows other protocols to set up their rules mm-hmm. uh, that are non-deterministic, i.e. they cannot be programmed in smart contracts purely okay. and have those rules enforced by the Q protocol. Um, that is that is the core idea behind the Q protocol. Mm-hmm. So and the way that this is done is that um, another protocol would need to first define their own rule set. In Q, we call this a constitution, mm-hmm. uh, which is a term I think that's often used in uh, DAOs or other protocols. Um, and then the the concept or the idea is that that these constitutions would become a, a part of the Q constitution, um, be integrated and therefore enforced by the Q protocol. Uh, so you could have, for example, for the DeFi example that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, you could have parameters that are defined uh, in writing qualitatively. Uh, so you're setting bounds um, within those parameters, uh, w- w- within which those parameters can be moved or determined. Um, but then those bounds are enforced by the Q protocol. And the essence of that is bringing human decision-making into the protocol, uh, but in a way such that the people who enforce the decisions cannot profitably exploit the parameter settings or the decision-making of the other protocols. So by sharing the governance security, uh, you're making it more secure, uh, which is very different from having a purely a governance token that defines or controls only one protocol. So similarly, as Ethereum or other layer one blockchains provide shared transaction security, mm-hmm. and it's not profitable to exploit Ethereum just to get your hands on the TVL um, of one specific application that sits on top of Ethereum. Um, Similarly, the idea behind Q is that by sharing this governance security, uh, if you want to corrupt certain parameters or certain governance decisions of protocols um, that use Q as a governance um, backbone, you know, it, it would just be way too costly to corrupt the whole Q protocol um, just to corrupt one specific application um, that's using the Q governance features. Okay, there's a lot in there that I would I would love to unpack. But firstly, you said a, a buzzword, <laughs> a constitution, just sort of taking two steps back. I You point out, actually, especially I listened to a talk that you delivered in, in at ETH Denver, that um, enforcement of decisions is a critical factor, which is uh, what you spoke of earlier, the sort of the, the three elements um, of what is what is important in a, in a proper governance. Would you when does a DAO, would you say that, a, for example, if we're talking about DAOs, is there a time when a DAO would, would need a constitution and not need a constitution? Or would you say that a constitution is needed all the time in setting up a DAO? It's definitely it's definitely not needed all of the time. Um, I would say that many DAOs would benefit from it mm-hmm. or do benefit from it, uh, but there is a tendency of DAOs to pack too much into a constitution, mm-hmm. um, kind of make it more like a mission statement and uh, and a roadmap and not think clearly or sufficiently about uh, execution or enforcement of the rules that are in the constitution. So my general advice is that if you have things in the constitution that cannot be enforced, you should very, very cautiously think about whether it makes sense to have them in there because it 
can have the opposite effect of people relying on the rules, uh, but that then finding out in hindsight that the rules are not enforceable, which then causes you know frustration. In the best case, loss of funds in the worst case. Mm-hmm. Um, so this element of enforcement, I think, is critical. Uh, but also, maybe one step before that, um, things that can be programmed via immutable smart contracts, you may not need to put into a constitution because, you know, that's why we have smart contracts for. So um, anything that can enforce on a quote-unquote code is law basis, mm-hmm. it makes sense to do so. And uh, constitution part which goes beyond that should be re- really be, in my view, reserved for those elements uh, that cannot be coded yet. Okay. So I noticed you frequently use the phrasing code as law. <laughs> but um, as, as far as I, I gathered from, from the research that I did and, and listening to, to you and, and about Q, it's actually not enough. If I'm if I'm going, I hope I'm going in the right direction here. You actually you actually tweeted that your aim is to build a system that enables decentralized rule enforcement beyond code as law. So what exactly? I mean, we've you've alluded to this a bit, and we've talked about this, and we're dancing around this. But what exactly do you mean here? And also, I'm just uh, more curious, just in general, or more specifically, actually, how can how can code as law concept go rogue? I mean, we we did you did allude to the hacks and and, and what can go ro- go wrong, but just maybe some specific examples. So the term beyond code is law often causes <laughs> um, people to you know it, it causes strong reactions. Yeah, with some people. How so? How so? Well, well, the the term code is law has become kind of a battle cry for many people in crypto. Yeah, like a mantra. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, for good reasons, because it is what differentiates crypto from the traditional financial world, I guess, that you have rules that are immutable, mm-hmm. um, that you do not have to rely on traditional legal systems to uh, to have safe and secure systems that enable value transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's often butchered in the sense that some people believe that code is law can replace law overall. And it, it clearly, um, this is not how the term was intended to be used. Uh, if you read or listen to statements or, or um, publications of Lawrence Lessig, uh, who's uh, the Harvard professor who is credited with coming up with a term, I mean, that's clearly not what he was writing about or speaking about of the term. But But it does mean that in certain areas, code can um, take on functionally the role that you know traditionally law has played in many ways. So if you have immutable smart contracts, there are certain things that you can program that provide a level of security for transactions that you couldn't have just purely on a on a on a basis without a blockchain that you would traditionally rely on in a legal system or would, you would need the legal system um, to rely on transaction security. And, and these are areas where code is law uh, makes sense. So it, it does functionally um, complement or even replace legal systems or even do a better job than legal systems can in protecting certain types of security, specifically transaction security. But at the same time, there are so many things that cannot be coded. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is this theory, it's called the theory of incomplete contracts um, in economics, which basically states that uh, for many, if not most, decisions, we can't have deterministic outcomes because the, the, the future states of the world are just so, uh, potentially so many, and we cannot possibly foresee all of them. So inevitably, uh, you will need some interpretation when you set up rules um, or you will need to set up some mechanism of resolving conflicts or disputes uh, that come up in the future. So basically, it, it, it means that in a while, while we can try and we should try to um, encode as many things as we can, we will never be able to encode the whole world or all types of human transactions, uh, of, of, of business transactions, business decisions uh, in smart contracts. Therefore, we inevitably need this element of governance, mm-hmm. which um, yeah helps us resolve conflicts 
or, or even in the first place, come up with business models uh, that are you know more interesting than you know just money or just simple transactions. I I just had a, a flash when you said that the world cannot be. It, it's that it's the code is law and that cannot be automated with all these frameworks. And it just had a flash that I hope one day AI is not going to take over the other portion. <laughs> but that's a, that's a tangent. I wanted to to just have a quick focus on security because you keep alluding to it. Um, and how is it solved by a Q protocol? Or how does the protocol remove the risk of blockchain governance exploits? Crypto, for example, crypto ecosystems attacks or any kind of theft that we have witnessed over the past, well, since the inception of crypto, but um, more recently, the, some of the big ones, the big thefts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a system of checks and balances. Uh, so you have different stakeholders within the Q ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe an important one, maybe the most important one is uh, an element that we call root nodes which are full nodes in the system uh, that are responsible for enforcing the Q constitution and they can implement decisions or have things like veto rights on certain decisions based on the rule set or to which they are bound. Uh, so it's essentially, it, it, it's humans at the end of the day, um, it's people or institutions um, that are selected according to specified criteria ensuring competence but also independence Mm -hmm. and they can support enforcement of decisions within the protocol but also as we say integrated applications so the ones that integrate with the q protocol and have certain governance aspects enforced Um, but this is this is one element uh, but also the root nodes are then subject to checks and balances so um, a they need to put up stake in forms of q tokens which can be slashed mm-hmm. um, in case that they go wrong or are corrupted. There is also, they are subject to the dispute resolution process within the Q protocol, meaning that if there are root node decisions with which um, uh, the, the person or token holder uh, that is affected by it is not happy or believes that the rules of the constitution were not applied correctly, they can initiate uh, arbitration an arbitration procedure currently there is the ICC the International Chamber of Commerce's uh, Court of Arbitration Mm -hmm. uh, which is integrated into the protocol Um, currently we are integrating other arbitration options as well and the the token holders can choose the path of arbitration to contest decisions by root nodes or other stakeholders within the system um, on the basis that they're non-constitutional. Um, and, and again, if there is an arbitral award coming out of those cases, that can then be enforced on-chain. Mm-hmm. So there is a number of, of checks and balances, you know, a couple of more without going into too much detail. Uh, but this concept or idea of checks and balances is an important one in the sense that no single stakeholder or stakeholder group should be able to corrupt the system. Um, so you you mentioned Q tokens, which are which are the native assets of the Q blockchain. Um, maybe let's take a, a turn and talk about the technicals a bit, if you don't mind. What what are the primary characteristics of of the Q blockchain? Is it is it primarily a blockchain, or is it also an application specific blockchain, etc.? Just if you can just let us uh, in on the on the blockchain characteristics. Yeah, yeah. On a technical level, um, the Q protocol is based on a layer one blockchain, mm-hmm. which is uh, based on a fork of the Geth client. So it's, um, if you want, it's based on Ethereum technology. So the proposition of Q as a protocol is is not to be a better blockchain um, in the sense that maybe you know Solana or Avalanche or other contenders are are trying to do. So it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, if you will, competing on the basis of uh, transaction speed or transaction cost, I think it's it's good on all of those metrics. Mm-hmm. But that's not really um, that's not really the rationale or the reason why Q as a protocol exists. Um, so again, coming back to the technicalities, um, it's a layer one blockchain, fully EVM compatible. So anything that's running on Ethereum can easily be deployed on Q. 
uh, but as I said, it's a separate blockchain on a technical basis. Um, so in terms of transaction speed, transaction costs, you know, I think everything is competitive. So there is a five-second block time, um, five-second finality. Transaction costs are around 0.001 cent currently. You know, but then again, that's not really the focus also of the team that's supporting the Q protocol. The focus is really to provide this element of shared governance security, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't, you know, or hasn't existed so far yet. And having a separate layer one blockchain is a means to providing mm-hmm. uh, that functionality. What about um, what about the validators? How are the how is the validation system set up for in, in Q? Is it any different or is there any just trying to gather information on how it's different than some of the other layer ones? Yeah, it's a delegated proof of stake system mm-hmm. uh, within protocol delegation, which I think has been kind of out of fashion, but actually <laughs> becoming more popular again recently mm. with the discussions, especially in Ethereum about um, about liquid staking and you know, the consequences of that. So it's not, you know, again, I don't think the validation part is, you know, spectacularly novel in queue. I think think a couple of elements are actually interesting in that they do promote decentralization. So for me, the in-protocol delegation is is a positive aspect because um, it does force delegators... um, to think about risks, um, to do that diligence on validators, um, to distribute tokens, and therefore promotes decentralization. Um, having said all that, one element which also is important in that aspect is that we have the second layer of nodes, the root nodes, which also control, in a sense, not not control, that's the wrong word, but um, keep in check the validator set. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with even a relatively small validator set. I believe that the Q protocol, if you just purely look at it as a layer one blockchain, uh, can achieve a higher level of decentralization than other comparable blockchains because you have this added element um, of the root node layer, which would need to be corrupted in addition to the validator layer um, to do things like double spend or censor certain transactions. Um, Maybe just pointing out mm-hmm. one. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, one, one element which... I find increasingly interesting also given the recent discussions around not only potential censoring on the Ethereum blockchain, but also things like restaking in the Ethereum ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that is the concept of what we call constitutional slashing. Hmm. Uh, so given that Q as a protocol is based on a constitution that defines the rules of the system, mm-hmm. um, we're able to have um, to define responsibilities of validators that go beyond what you can um, detect on a purely technical level. Uh, and I think the most most important case here is censoring of transactions. So censoring of transactions in Ethereum or on other L1 blockchains is very hard, if not impossible, to detect automatically purely you know, on a technical basis. Um, you know, because it's, it, it's very hard to um, prove that anyone uh, consciously um, or, or was determined not to include certain transactions in a block, you know, because you have the mempool and, you know, some transactions might simply not be, have reached the mempool of a specific validator. So therefore, in Ethereum, as in other L1s, you don't have slashing penalties for censoring of transactions. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you have this discussion around social slashing, which basically means that if censoring is transact um, is detected by the community the community would need to get together and yeah kind of in an undefined way coordinate around slashing specific validators or forking out um, specific validators and within Q uh, given you know again that that the rule set is based on the constitution and slashing is administered by the root nodes uh, that is something that we can have in protocol. Which, which I think is very, very interesting, and, and you know, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, we'll never need to make use of in the protocol. But is an element of additional security to prevent certain type of malicious behavior at the validator level. What um, 
very that's the, the slashing it's um yeah um i had i had a thought before that um i i also read that DeFi comes natively on q protocol um what exactly do you mean by that does that mean that it's embedded in the protocol itself or how how is it um that it comes natively what what do you mean by that yeah there is there is a um DeFi system within Q that's been there from the very beginning. Um, that is mm-hmm. what we call a fully integrated application, meaning that there is no separate governance token and uh, decision making and governance of that DeFi protocol, which, which is essentially kind of a MakerDAO um, V1 clone, if you will. Um, that is all integrated in the Q protocol. Now, that doesn't mean that this DeFi system or this element of DeFi, which which is native to the Q protocol is in any way mm-hmm. um, exclusive or that it's that it's a you know preferred yeah preferred or recommended way to use Q. Uh, so Q as a protocol is completely permissionless it's open so anyone can um, deploy their own DeFi applications on Q. But it's it's kind of I guess a test case or, or um Proof of concept, maybe, um, is a better word, uh, for some of the governance features within Q. So things like parameter setting within that DeFi protocol, which is you know, a decentralized stablecoin, over-collateralized, um, similar to MakerDAO, that has been there um, in the Q protocol from the start. So it's kind of demonstrating how the Q governance mechanisms can be used within DeFi systems. Just, just curious, how long is mainnet running? For I mean, how long has um, Q been on Mainnet? Uh, Mainnet was launched in March 2022. Oh, okay. So for uh, over one and a half years. And uh, and the first yeah, go for yeah. Go. Just the, the the first year, I would say, um, or first maybe nine months roundabout, uh-huh. uh, were mainly used to. Um, a, build out the stakeholder base, so specifically root nodes. We started with three root nodes um, in the Genesis block, which were uh, first um, yeah, run by the Q International Foundation, which uh, is the entity that launched the protocol. Right now, there are 25 root nodes in on five continents, and I believe today it's uh, either 12 or 13 different jurisdictions. Uh, and that, that was built out uh, during the first during the first year of the protocol. Okay. And uh, since, yeah, pretty much, I would say this summer, um, protocols have started onboarding at a much greater speed on the Q protocol. Um, and, and I guess it's it's different to many other launches of layer one protocols in the sense that many of them have a testnet that's running. Um, they're trying to onboard protocols to the testnet by incentive devising them to do so and then kind of have a big bang launch um, the reason why we did things differently within Q is that we felt that the governance framework and stakeholder base needed to be built out first before um, uh, yeah having meaningful protocols with um, value behind it on board onto Q because it, it, it really is a security critical element, um, the whole governance right. aspect of Q. So mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of grapple with the term governance experimentation, which is always <laughs> often used. You know, I think experimentation is fine as long as it doesn't involve real value. Mm-hmm. But as soon as it does, you know, you should be beyond or, or the, the experimentation stage. So we, we try to really get a solid grounding on the governance framework, on the governance um, stakeholders that are involved, um, build it out, test it, uh, have some cases within the Q protocol itself um, before being more public and uh, having more protocols, external protocols on board onto Q. Well, throughout the so-called govern- uh, governance experimentation, what would you say were your main uh, learning lessons or key takeaways? Uh, one is that designing a system that's coherent is not enough. You also need the participants mm-hmm. to operate within the systems. So 
as I said, the root nodes that we've mm-hmm. built out mm-hmm. over more than a year are a critical element. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of those are experienced people and institutions that bring um, valuable skills uh, to the Q protocol. Uh, nevertheless, they need to be familiar with the Q constitution. They need to be familiar with the processes, both from a technical standpoint and uh, a governance standpoint. And that takes time. Right. I mean, it's it's not like you can just, I mean, sometimes you see the parallel or the analogy of, of countries that um, form newly and uh, import legal systems. Um, and, and we've had, you know, unfortunate examples throughout the world where that's been the case, where new country formed and then came up with a new uh, constitution, new set of laws. But just just having those laws on paper just isn't enough. You know, you need the people to actually live the laws, you know, to you need a culture to develop around those laws uh, to make them work well. And if that doesn't happen, uh, they will often have the opposite effect of yeah, being used as a facade uh, to implement decisions that are actually not within the spirit of, of what was intended. And I think similarly on, on decentralized protocols, um, as soon as humans get involved, uh, you need you need the culture to develop um, alongside with the former rule set. The culture? Yes. Yes. The culture. It, sorry, I just didn't. Yeah, the culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you can you speak more about that in terms of what what, what is the Q culture or is there a Q culture? Um, would you say? Definitely. Definitely. Um it's a good question. I've, I've never been asked to define it, so um, let me <laughs> let me give it a try. Let me give it a try. No, I mean it's it's wouldn't say wouldn't say. How, how do you see it, maybe, or or has it been an evolving culture? Because I'm sure the starting points have also been different than what you just mentioned. Sort of attracting and having participants also. Who are all these participants? I mean, they all contribute um, and constitute the culture, but. Um, just, just it, it's all. I also I always find it interesting to to hear. I mean, it may be just your perception, but it, it's it's not a static um, concept, right? Of culture, it's, it, it's like an evolving. Yeah, it's an, an evolving um, phenomenon. So, based on the history, uh, also the the way in which the protocol is up is set up, as well as the stakeholders that are participating. I would say, and, and, and I don't want to sound it like it's boring or not fun, but I would say there is a, <laughs> there is a more, there is awareness of the seriousness of what we're doing within the culture yes. of the Q stakeholders. Yes. So, so it's, um, and, yeah. it's, you know, I mean, we, we, we do have fun, you know, we do enjoy ourselves definitely, but I think the stakeholders that contribute to the Q ecosystem are aware, very well aware of that, you know, what, we are doing what they are doing what mm-hmm. the community is doing the purpose right you know has has an impact right it it it, it affects um potentially other people other protocols um that build on queue so i would say there is an understanding of the seriousness um that maybe is lacking in other ecosystems or other communities sometimes sure I don't think that's boring at all. I think that's actually uh, <laughs> it's uh, it, it adds a, a an element of credibility, right? I mean, just being part of um, well, you you previously mentioned that you covered twelve jurisdictions, so I I sort of just automatically thought, okay, this is this is more of a global thing that for one, but also the commitment and the dedication and the focus. I mean, um, yeah, it sounds maybe sort of cliche, but I think it's, it's needed now more than ever because just in general, the, the, the web three or crypto, or we, again, we use these terms interchangeably. So I'm considering that you're, um, you think it's important how we use our words. I, I wanted to ask you about that as well later, but, I don't think it's boring at all, bottom line, um, in terms of the culture. And, and you definitely want to have your team members to be, to, to know why they're there, right? To, to know what the purpose is. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe accountability, accountability is a yeah. um, mm-hmm. term mm-hmm. that comes in here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, you know, I've never been asked the question, so trying to make up my mind here as, as I speak. But I think that 
the governance stakeholders are very well aware of what they're doing and, and they feel accountable of what they're doing, which mm-hmm. you know is something that maybe is sometimes lacking, as I said, in other ecosystems where people just more are in the experimentation stage and just think that you know this this concept of concept of move fast and break things I think is works in mm-hmm. some areas. It definitely shouldn't be applied in when it comes to governance decisions. Um, as soon as they go beyond, you know, the trivial. Mm-hmm. How big is the Q team? How how many people do you do you have generally? Uh, so always a difficult question because um, it depends on um, whom you count and how you count. Uh, so if you look at the core governance community, I mean, root notes, as I said, twenty five currently. Mm-hmm. There is Q Development, uh, which is a Liechtenstein-based company, which has, um, which is supporting the protocol, which has, I think, about probably something like seven or eight people working um, full time. But of course, then there is a much broader uh, set of people working on the protocol, supporting the protocol, um, often part time, often as contractors or, you know, in parallel to supporting other protocols or working on other protocols. And I would say that probably something like, you know, 30 people um, on top of that, that I would consider to be very close um, to the protocol. And are these, actually, are, is this more? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Um, no, are, no, are, just, just working, working actively on building elements um, of the protocol or very close to the protocol. Are these mostly developers? Uh, well, probably 50-50, not entirely. So, not entirely. You know, obviously, okay. there are a bunch of developers. Also, there are people with governance, more legal backgrounds. Um, also people, I mean, like myself, I'm not a developer. Uh, I have a finance background. Um, so things that I'm working on mm-hmm. are concepts of how to evolve the protocol um, to be able to better and more easily integrate other protocols into the governance framework provide easier access, uh, provide frameworks around uh, how that can be done for specific functions, for specific use cases. So, yeah, also there are other people similar to me who don't necessarily have a technical or developer background, still work uh, yeah, on developing elements of the protocol further. So you just uh, described for us a bit what your role is as one of the co-initiators. Um, just curious, what's your... Well, I probably don't have a typical day. Um, no one has a typical day <laughs> in this space, but um, a roller coaster. But maybe a, I don't know a typical week, or or maybe what are your typical days look? What are your typical days look like now? Uh, yeah, I I mean you you kind of <laughs> in this already space. gave the answer. <laughs> I already answered. Um, it's which, not typical. Which yeah, I guess which also makes it very interesting for me that. Um, I, I don't necessarily have typical days, but currently mm-hmm. I'm working very closely with a, with a small team um, of people mm-hmm. where we are thinking about and developing concepts of how to how to provide tooling and potentially also evolve the protocol itself. Uh, so make proposals um, how the protocol, the Q protocol could change in the future. Uh, that make it easier mm-hmm. for other protocols to onboard and to use the Q governance architecture. And you know, just, just trying to trying to answer your question here, so <laughs> typical day would be combination of talking to those people, you know, in meetings, uh, catching up on what they've been working on, what they're working, thinking myself mm-hmm. about those concepts, um, writing things down, talking to developers testing and checking how that can be implemented on a technical basis. Um, But but it's very much multidisciplinary. So, I mean, there is always the technical aspect. Um, There is the legal or governance aspect. And of course, there is also the, you know, if you want to call it that, the the market aspect. So also spend a fair amount of time talking to people who are engaged in other protocols um, and trying to find out what their pain points are and what we can do um, to address those pain points. So um, in terms of use cases, in terms of uh, functional uh, capabilities or elements of other projects and protocols, you know, where, does, where is governance security needed? 
um, where does it provide the most mm -hmm. value to other protocols or people um, building either on queue or, or even in other ecosystems. So would you say that talking to other people who are into the governance framework realm, it sounds like this is a collaborative process. So it's not like a queue is a closed thing and you guys are secretly <laughs> doing what you're doing um, with your own recipe. It doesn't sound like um, it's it's a competitive um, I don't know, I would say like a competitive, um, there's a competitive tone to it. Um, if, if I understood it correctly, um, you're collaborating with other protocols that are also trying to tackle the governance framework. A absolutely. Um, and one of the... Which is the way to go, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what... I mean, it's all, this is this is Web3, right? I mean, it's... it's. I mean, yeah, we say, oh, and there's... No, we're all working on it together and it's it shouldn't be competitive. You know, I mean, there there, there is that, that portion of it. Um, but f for this, it's important that it's not, right? Because just like what you said, it, the from the ground up, it should be... That just in general, the governance, the governance setup is is critical. Um, so figuring it out the right way, it sounds like it should be collaborative and inclusive. Yes, yeah, I mean absolutely. It it also it it cannot work if it's not right. So I mean it it's not like the Q protocol can impose anything on anyone else. Mm -hmm. People need to want to use what the Q protocol provides otherwise it's it's not worth anything mm -hmm. so i think necessarily it's a collaborative process but but also and and it's not really it's, it's not hard also to consider it that way because there isn't really competition i mean it, it's such a new and mm -hmm. in my view underdeveloped area of web3 mm -hmm. um, maybe differently to some other areas i mean if you're working on a DeFi protocol, you know, the, we're doing a DEX just on a different ecosystem or we're doing a DEX or, or I don't know, um, um, decentralized per protocol, which there are already 20 of, and we're trying to do a um, little thing just a little bit better, mm -hmm. then maybe it's much more natural to develop that competitive feeling that you shouldn't collaborate, that you should be um, working against other protocols rather than collaborate uh, with them because there is so much out there. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to governance security, there isn't really much. So, <laughs> so um, it, in, in that sense, it's not even a question. It's, um, a, mm -hmm. But I, yeah, again, I think it's, it's, it's a necessity to be collaborative. Absolutely. To what extent is, is the Q protocol active and in use? So in terms of people using, using Q, uh, by or, or just by organizations that are that are using Q. To what extent? I mean, I'm just trying to. I don't know what what the best um, how to phrase the question, but yeah. I mean, to what extent are you active? I mean, who who's approaching you, or do you have a typical user, or do, do people approach you, or do you do you find that you you are approaching others, or how, how does that process work of onboarding? I don't know. We should say potential clients um, or just users. Yeah. Um Right now, there are around, um, I believe it's something like 14 or 15 protocols mm -hmm. um, that we are working with that either already do or intend to use the governance features of Q. So as we say, opt into the governance features or integrate mm -hmm. with Q's governance features, um, meaning that those protocols also um, pay for the governance features. So similarly, like you would pay for gas fees on Ethereum, you pay governance fees on Q if you're integrating with Q and use those features. And, and currently, as I said, four, right, 14 or 15, I think it is, oh, 14 protocols okay. um, yes, are, are doing that. Okay. Um, it's still an early stage, I would say. Mm -hmm. And still onboarding is, for the most part, yeah, bespoke in the sense that there are no plug-and-play solutions yet, which is something, um, as I said earlier, that, that um, I'm working on together with a small team. But th this is, yeah, this is uh, kind of where we're at in terms of protocol usage when it comes to the governance features of Q, which, which uh, is the main 
a differentiator of the queue protocol. And the way in which uh, those protocols or projects learn about queue, I think, is um, has been very much um, in the last yeah, few months. It has been people from the queue community approaching other people in, in other protocols or ecosystems. I think um, as the queue protocol grows, and this is what we are experiencing right now, we mm-hmm. also have people that, that learn about the queue protocol and then pro, um, actively approach someone within the ecosystem or uh, from, the, from the core team. Mm-hmm. I Just by reading your website and, and the information about Q, just curious, so how are MIT and Deutsche Telekom and Greenfield Capital and all these big names uh, supporting the project? Uh, the ones that you mentioned, they are all active as root nodes. Uh, so Deutsche Telekom, Greenfield, uh, they are the is it University of yes Toulouse? University of Toulouse. So, so it's not the university itself, super precise. Um, it's um, a professor David Saland, who's a game theorist, who's um, acting as a root node. Uh huh. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, root node um, is one way to support. Also, Deutsche Telekom and Greenfield Capital. Uh, the two of the the two of them have participated in a token sale earlier, um, actually last year. Mm-hmm. So they've also invested in um, in Q tokens, and Deutsche Telekom is also operating a validator node. Mm-hmm. So there are different there are different ways in which they support it. I think um, the ones you mentioned, as I said, all run root nodes. Um, there is some overlap between root nodes, validators, um, people in what we call expert panels, which is another. Um, type of governance stakeholder which is more specialized compared to root nodes and, and taking care of decisions in certain functional areas. Um, so it's a different element, but yeah, as I said, the ones that you've mentioned all are active as root nodes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, and how many co-initiators are there? Um, uh, three. <laughs> so three, because it's it's you yourself and is um, yes, is it Nicholas. Nicholas uh, um, and also Andre. And there's, oh, so there's one more. Yes. Okay. And you're, so are you more of the, more of the financial backbone <laughs> or sort of the <laughs> financial consultant backbone, considering that you've, you've been in finance and I would, I would expect that you're, well, that I, I shouldn't say this, but um, more, um, more the skeptical one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm also uh, that, an ex-finance I, person, and I'm I'm a skeptical person. So yeah, that I definitely would agree. I'm I'm very skeptical. I'm, I'm at the same time I can Risk be very averse. enthusiastic about things, uh-huh. but I, I'm very, which kind of is difficult sometimes yeah. being both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm I'm skeptical. Yes, that's a fair statement. Mm. And and I'm definitely the one who's naturally inclined uh, to work on all the economics topics okay uh, you know token token design um, incentive design you know what's the motivation what's the payoffs for different stakeholders how are how they are, are, are aligned or not you know um, picking out agency conflicts within the ecosystem trying to come up with ways to solve them okay um, that's definitely something that's very much related to my finance background sure. Um, would you say that there are many more prominent challenges with, within what you just mentioned? You talked about incentive design. It sounds exciting, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, definitely. Um, how do you how do you design an incentive? I mean, did you do you actually design? I mean, you're the sole um, sort of initiator of of that. Um, how do you go about designing the incentive system? Um, it's not a process that I could easily structure. So it's definitely be very iterative in the sense that we've been working on it um, before even starting programming anything, mm-hmm. um, just coming up with different designs, different design options, mm-hmm. um, weighing them against each other, writing things down, rewriting things. Um, and of course, I think a large part is learning from other protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, the people forget about that, but there have been um, many token designs even even before Ethereum, even before um, DeFi existed. Sure. Um, that went into these things. I mean, uh, trying to learn from them, you know, both the good parts and, and 
the bad parts where protocols failed, mm -hmm. uh, but also trying to learn from other areas. I mean, you know, obvious one for me with a finance background is looking at corporate finance, trying to figure out what worked there, uh, what doesn't or what didn't. And uh, yeah, just, just making improvements, um, yeah, step by step in an iterative process. That's the way that we've gone about it. Mm-hmm. Well, Martin, what's uh, what lies ahead and in terms of your roadmap, or can you let us in on on sort of the short term for year end twenty twenty three, and and what lies ahead further in twenty twenty four? Short term or short and medium term is definitely a onboarding existing protocols um, that are already either on queue mm -hmm. or want to onboard onto queue and supporting them with governance integration. And following from that, learning what protocols actually need, what works, uh, what is helpful, and um, trying to modularize these things into uh, yeah, almost like APIs, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's kind of the vision uh, to make it easier for protocols to onboard onto queue and to use queue to protect uh, governance security. That is something, you know, as I said, that I'm working on uh, these days. Uh, maybe following on from that, which is maybe a little bit more long-term, but I think also moving very fast, is the topic of cross-chain governance. Mm. Uh, so uh, currently, to use Q's governance features, you would still need to build on Q natively um, as a layer one. Mm -hmm. I believe that adding the ability for protocols that don't live on queue, but that natively are on other chains um, to use queue's governance features uh, is very valuable. Um, and I've just come back from um, DevConnect in Istanbul. I mean, there was a lot of talk about cross-chain governance. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, it's an area where we're moving fast. Um, you know, some of people within the queue ecosystem have started researching on that. We do have some projects with other protocols uh, where we already um, figuring out first prototypes, uh, so being able to expand what Q as a protocol can offer beyond the native Q blockchain uh, is is one area of research and work that we're very keen on. Well, it's, it's actually it sounds exciting. It is so cross. <laughs> no, I'm being. I mean, I'm yeah. being serious. Cro it's it's yeah. Cr cross chain governance. Then that's sort of the yes. the, the next. Um, Next frontier, yeah. What, what you're moving on to next. Yeah. Ne next frontier, actually, that's a good one. Well, Martin, I mean, we, we, I just noticed we've been talking for, for a little over an hour. I think we've, we've covered some, some um, extensive, well, you've covered some extensive ground um, very nicely for us. Is, is there anything um, that I have not asked that maybe you wanted to share or that I should have asked um, in our conversation, throughout our conversation? Uh, I don't... I don't think so. Now, I think we've or you've touched on really a lot of very relevant topics. Uh, so I don't have anything to add right now. Yeah, I think I mean, the purpose of is sort of setting the stage, getting getting a little bit more into what governance frameworks, what does it all mean, right? And you what your what Q is doing, um, there's a transactional part. And then there's obviously the governance part, which is which is um, the purpose. So, well, this has been a great conversation. I, I really thank you so much for your time. I've actually learned a great deal just by listening to you. And I did some preliminary research, but um, obviously it's, um, it, it sinks in much more when, when you actually talk about it. What would be the best way to follow your work or contact and, and of course, or maybe participate, um, if you could just share with our audience? Um, best place to start is probably the website mm -hmm. for the Q protocol, which is run by Q Development. Um, the company website is simple. It's q.org. Okay. And from there on, you'll find links to all the socials. Um, so Twitter or Discord. Mm -hmm. um, Discord is a place where a lot of the conversation is happening. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll also be easily able to get in touch with you know, members of the community um, team members, uh, no matter whether it's specific questions around what Q can do for other protocols, but um, also just general questions around Q. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Twitter, Discord, um, you'll find all the links via Q.org. The usual. 
Okay, great. Yeah, we'll, we will include all that information in our show notes. Um, so on that note, Martin, thanks so much for talking with me today and giving our audience, um, like I mentioned, a better understanding of Q and its governance framework, um, which, as you illustrated, goes beyond the code is law mantra of automation. It's important to take this into account as we continuously strive to improve the concept of Web3 and just in general governance. So I wish you and your team all the best. Good luck. And uh, perhaps we can have you on our podcast at, at some later time and, and talk about cross-chain governance. <laughs> Thank you, Nina. It was fun. Thanks a lot for having me. Sure thing. Thank you. Thanks again to our guests, and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks also to the Barium Music team for providing their music. You can check them out on barriummusic.com. The episode supporting information is on our website, blockchainrecorded.com. Our podcast is available on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, and Radio Public. You can follow us on Twitter at Recorded Podcast and YouTube, where we are super grateful for your support. Stay tuned for our next episode.